chapter 5 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read all of 2 Samuel chapter 5. We talked about the first few verses of it last week, uh, but we're going to read it again, and then we'll continue in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So 2 Samuel 5, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Uh, This is what Holy Scripture says. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, he'll not get in here. Even the blind and lame could ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. Difficult to translate those verses are, uh, David is mocking the Jebusites. They said, even the blind and lame could keep you out. And he says, sure, then I'll go attack the blind and lame like you. And he, he, he mocks the Jebusites, calls them blind and lame. Some of you might be inclined to read the end of verse 8 that David has a problem with disabilities. Okay, that's not the point of this passage at all. He's making fun of the Jebusites. Okay? Uh, in a few weeks, we'll get to Mephibosheth, the lame man who was ate at the king's table. So clearly this is not an uh, anti-disability passage in the scriptures. Just clarification. Verse 9. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Verse 14, here we go. These are the names of the children born to him. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. What happened to John? Okay, anyway, verse 17. A mark would have been good. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? And the Lord answered him, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. Perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. 
Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. If you're going to understand Christianity, you have to be able to to distinguish between good news and good advice. Good news is a report of what has happened, and good advice is a suggestion that you should follow. Good news is a story. Good advice is a challenge. And at the heart of Christianity, as the Bible describes it, is good news, not good advice. Here's how Tim Keller describes it in his book, um, Hidden Christmas. This is what he writes about it. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it is all up to you to act. News says that someone else has acted. Let's say there's an invading army coming toward a town. What that town needs is military advisors. It needs advice. Someone should explain that the earthworks and trenches should go over there and the marksmen should go up there and the the tanks must go down there. However, if a great king has intercepted and defeated the invading army, what does the town need then? It doesn't need military advisors. It needs messengers. And the Greek word for messengers is angelos or angels. The messengers do not say, here is what you have to do. They rather say, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. In other words, stop building fortifications. Stop trying to save yourselves. The king has saved you. Something has been done and it changes everything. There's a vast difference between good news and good advice. And as we work our way through 2 Samuel, especially in these chapters that we're in, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, the focus is not so much on the advice we can get from the Bible in following David's footsteps, as if David is a model for faithfulness, but, but the, the emphasis of these chapters is on the fact that God, uh, David stands uniquely in the Old Testament as God's king. He did what no other king uh, before him did or could do. And, And we read these chapters not as advice based on the model life of David, but as news about what God has done in these chapters. And then when we broaden our, t- our view to the rest of the Bible, we uh, read these narratives here as pointers to the Lord Jesus. Remember that connection between David in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. So David stands in the Old Testament. He's not a perfect man. He is not God in the flesh, but he's David. He's the king who teaches the people what to expect when Jesus shows up. What is Jesus going to look like in his his character, his demeanor? What is he going to do? What's he going to accomplish? Well, David points ahead to the Lord Jesus. I have a friend named Ray. I haven't seen Ray in uh, quite some time. But I, uh, for a while, I was spending a fair amount of time with Ray. And uh, Ray is warm and he is encouraging. I always leave Ray's presence 
uh, encouraged and, and glad-hearted. Well, one day I was uh, volunteering uh, at, uh, again, a number of years ago, we were volunteering at one of the fifth quarters hosted by Crossway Church. And there was a young man there that I was talking to, and, and I just noticed in, in the way he, he tilted his head and in the pace of his words, it, it dawned on me, that guy has to be related to Ray. I've never met him before, and I, I said to this young man, I said, are you Ray's son? Is, is Ray your dad? He said, yeah, Ray's my dad. There were things about just his tone and the way he held his head even when he talked that reminded me of, of Ray. And you know what happened? Uh, because Ray is such a, an, an upstanding guy, someone who I really respect, that young man immediately got my respect and admiration because he's the son of Ray. So we have all these stories in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, David, look at David, look at what he does, look at what he says, look how he, how he responds to God and God's enemies and what he does about that. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and, and he does little things seemingly in the Gospels, just little motions of his head or just the tone of his words. And you're supposed to look at, it, look at him and say, I bet that's David's son. I think that's David's son. And, and take all the things that you know about David and apply them to the Lord Jesus. That, that's the way the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, are supposed to work. All, all the way through these, these ties between the two. That's the lens through which I want to read this chapter, understand Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter 5 with you this morning. I, I, I've called this sermon, the title's at the top of that note sheet, it's called The King That We Need, The King We Need. So when we read about Saul a few weeks ago, well, let's be honest, a long time ago, several months ago, we read about Saul. Saul was the king that the nation of Israel wanted. He looked like a king. They thought he was impressive like a king, but he was not the king that they needed. David is the king that they needed. So let's use this chapter. We're going to look at David's life, and then we're going to compare it to the Lord Jesus, what the Gospels in the New Testament says about the Lord Jesus. And I want you to know those three things. So first of all here, we need a king who is dedicated to following God's commands. We need a king who's dedicated to God's commands. Good news, that sort of king has come. Uh, verses 6 through 10 here are about uh, David's conquest of the city of Jerusalem. Now, from a strategic standpoint, this is a great move. Uh, David has been king in Hebron in Judah in the south. And the rest of the nation of Israel has come and they have crowned him king. And now he's going to find a new capital and he's going to move it north. That's a good move. Um, it's strategic to be more in the center of the country. And he's going to go to this city, uh, Jerusalem, that at this point in time is not occupied by the Israelites. Neutral territory. That was a wise and strategic move. But there's a connection here between what happens in this passage here and, and what is happening today in our headlines. Uh, last week, President Trump announced that he was prepared to declare officially the United States recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. Uh, that recognition uh, is, is going to be most clearly manifest in the fact that they're going to try to build a United States embassy in Jerusalem. The embassy is going to move from where it is right now in Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. 
the president made that declaration and controversy erupted. In fact, I think I read in the newspaper that yesterday there was a protest in downtown Lancaster over the fact that Jerusalem was going to be the declared capital of Israel. The United States was going to make that move. In Lancaster, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. Why? Why? Well, here's a little bit of the story. So 1948, the United Nations declared that uh, part of Palestine would become uh, a Jewish state. It was the birth of the modern state of Israel in 1948. Uh, Jerusalem was not going to be the capital of that modern-day state. In fact, Jerusalem was going to be an international city. It was going to be ruled by an international body, probably the United Nations or somebody that they delegated that to. Well, when uh, the nation of Israel was formed, immediately five Arab countries invaded Uh, The United States and President Harry Truman, he was determined about this, helped Israel defend itself in 1948. And in that war, the Israelis captured half of Jerusalem. They took it over. And then in 1967, there was another war that the Arabs started when they invaded Israel again, and the Israelis won, and they took over East Jerusalem. So now there is Israeli control of Jerusalem. In 1995, uh, Congress overwhelmingly passed a law that the United States has said that the United States recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. That was in 1995. President Clinton at the time let the law become a law without his signature, uh, and he asked Congress to put a provision in that law that the president had the right to, to sign a waiver every six months uh, that for security reasons, uh, Jerusalem would not be the capital. So since 1995, every president of the United States, every six months, has signed a waiver saying that it's too dangerous for Jerusalem to become the capital of Israel, to to the United States to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, until now. So President Trump has made that declaration, and uh, controversy erupted. So the Palestinians that live there uh, say that Jerusalem has to be their capital and the Israelis argue that it rightly belongs to them and that history begins here with this Israelite capture of the city of Jerusalem. Actually, I'm not as interested in in the modern day perspective of the history of Jerusalem as I am about the Bible and its understanding of Jerusalem. It's hard to overstate how important the book of uh, the city of Jerusalem is to the Bible. It's all the way throughout the Old Testament. It's the seat of the royal house. It's the location of the temple. We're going to talk about that uh, next week. Nope, not next week. In two weeks. Next week we're going to talk about Christmas. But uh, in two weeks. In verse 19 in this text, David is the first one who's credited as calling on God from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of national life. It's it's the place uh, uh, that that Jesus entered triumphantly. It's the place of the city outside of which he was crucified. It's the city outside of which he rose from the dead. Uh, uh, It's the city that the wise men, when they were looking for the king of Israel, they went to Jerusalem. This morning, from Psalm 48, we read about how God is in her citadels, and God dwells in Jerusalem, and the city is so important in the Scriptures. The text does not indicate how much of that David foresaw when he invaded the city. It it actually, the text actually makes us look backwards a little bit, because it mentions the Jebusites. The Jebusites were ruling over Jerusalem. Uh, after God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, 
he commanded them, as they were going into the promised land, he commanded them that there were certain people groups that they had to utterly destroy. And the Jebusites were among that group. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 20.16. Deuteronomy 20.16. This is about 500 years before David. Um, however, Deuteronomy 20.16 says, In the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you his inheritance, do not leave anything alive that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So, uh, God had commanded Joshua to destroy the Jebusites, and the Israelites failed miserably at it. Look at Joshua 15:63. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. Until now. Until David, crowned king, does what Joshua did not do and what all the leaders between Joshua and David could not do. It is almost as if David, now that he's crowned king, is like a new Joshua and he's going to come and reconquer the land for his people. He's, he's going he's to fulfill God's purposes and, and take over this land just like God had always intended, the new king, David. So the, the author of Samuel here is trying to compare uh, David and Joshua by their conquering of the Jebusites. David is the new and better Joshua in the text. You know what the book of Hebrews tells us? The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the new and better Joshua too. Uh, the book of Hebrews makes that comparison. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8. We're entering into a, a moving stream of thought here, but the contrast with Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to, and this is in the context through the Lord Jesus, enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So David picks up the book of Deuteronomy. He's crowned king. He picks up Deuteronomy and he looks at it and he said, this is what Joshua is supposed to do. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to obey God's word. I'm going to fulfill God's command. I'm going. And the book of Hebrews picks up this whole story and says, you know what? Jesus is a conquering hero, just like David, just like Joshua. The author of Hebrews also highlights the Lord Jesus' obedience to God's word. It's, it's Christmas time. We, we celebrate Christmas, of course. And we think about the incarnation. We think about the wonder of God's love. We think about God's glory, God's generosity. But you know that Hebrews 10 tells us that the incarnation is a grand act of obedience on the part of the Lord Jesus? That Jesus came in obedience to his Father? David picked up the book of Deuteronomy and obeyed, and Jesus it says of him in Hebrews 10, look what the text says. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. You know what kind of king we need? What kind of savior we need? We need a king, we need a savior who, who takes up God's commands and fulfills them to the best of his ability. And that's what the Lord Jesus does. That's what David does. That's what the Lord Jesus does. Of course, to the best of Jesus' abilities perfectly. <laughs> now, there's an emphasis in the text on how David, how David conquers the Jebusites. 
I'm going to give you two C words to describe this. The first one is the word confidence. Confidence. Almost, he's almost triumphalistic in this passage. So uh, we talked about this. The Jebusites say, you know, the blind and lame could defend you, David. We, we could keep you off of the blind and lame. And David says, oh, let's see how your blind and lame people do. Right? He's, 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 he's mocking them. He, he turns that, that phrase into a, 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 a phrase that he, he calls the Jebusites for the rest of their lives. The, the blind and the lame. Um, the Jebusites say, you'll never defeat us. And David says, oh yeah? Watch this. Now, are there parallels with the Lord Jesus? Maybe. Um, John 3 says that Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. So so the first time that he came, the emphasis is on Jesus as Savior. That's the message we preach. Jesus is our Savior. He's the coming conqueror. But look on the other side of your sheet, your note sheet, if you want, at Luke 13. And look what it says. It mentions Jerusalem, too. Look at the text. David, is he's a little triumphalistic, I think. I love what Jesus says here. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said, Go tell that fox. It's not a compliment. Okay? You go tell that fox. I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. On the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now we'll keep reading because it talks about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the Jebusites come up to David and say, ha, we could defeat you with the blind and lame. And David says, oh yeah, watch. And the Pharisees come up and say, you know, Jesus, you better get away because Herod's out to get you. And Jesus says, that fox, that fox, you just wait till the third day. Oh, you'll see what I can do on the third day. This is confidence, right? Uh, now, that, that confidence is paired with another C word, a great deal of cleverness. Oh, I didn't read Psalm 2. I should read Psalm 2 because it's a wonderful passage of Scripture, right? This, this reminds me of Psalm 2, Okay. Uh, Look what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers bend together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. God laughs at you. He laughs at people who think he doesn't matter. He laughs at people who think that Jesus is a pushover. The one in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God's king will not be mocked. There's confidence here in this passage. Now, that confidence is paired with a great deal of cleverness. Cleverness. I don't understand exactly what happened in the passage. The Hebrew is very difficult, and the the architecture uh, of Jerusalem is difficult to understand, too. It says that, let's see, verse 8, it says they used the water shaft to reach those lame and blind Jebusites. 
In these days, every walled city, if you had a walled city and you wanted to survive a siege, you needed to have a source of water inside the walls. So they'd have a well. In Jerusalem, underneath Jerusalem, there's all kinds of tunnels that lead to springs. And apparently, there's this water shaft. They found one in the 1800s that they think might be this. It's a 45 feet uh, tall water shaft. And David, in order to attack the city, uh, got into the shaft, and he and his soldiers climbed up this 45 feet and then got into the city and attacked and destroyed the Jebusites. That's clever. That's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, later in the book of Samuel, we're going to come to chapters that talk about how uh, David's best warriors, and here's one of their great exploits. What kind of a king did God give Israel? A king like this, dedicated to following God's commands. And he did it confidently. He did it cleverly. What kind of Lord has God given the church? One who, like his father David, is confident and who can't be outsmarted. That's the kind of king that we have, the savior that we have. Now, second here, what kind of king do we need? We need a king who is dependent on God's resources. A king who is dependent on God's resources. His provisions. It's clear in the passage here that, that David's defeat of the Philistines, which is described in the second half of chapter 7, um, is, is God's work. It's very clearly God's work. The text is so clear. Verse 19, David prays, Will you deliver them into my hands? And verse 19, God says, Yes, I will. I will deliver them into your hands. Verse 24 says, When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees... Move quickly because the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike down the Philistine army. I like the subtle dig that's in this passage. You notice it at the Philistine gods. Verse 21, I think this is so, so funny. The Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. The Philistine gods are so weak they can't save the Philistines from being defeated. And the Philistine gods are so weak they can't even save themselves from the Israelites. They get captured. A subtle dig there. David's going to do what, he, what God tells him to do. That's true. He's informed by the law, but all along the way he inquires of the Lord. He seeks God. He asks for help and guidance. He has a real living relationship with the real God. You know, the, the supreme law of our land is set down in the Constitution, right? Those those uh, documents. It's a document with words and sentences and we can read it. You know, there's a lot of debate, isn't there, about what those words mean. So we read them and we interpret those words. Think about how convenient it would be to be able to talk to the authors. If we could get them in and say, you know, what did you mean here, this Second Amendment here? Were you thinking about people owning guns or were you really thinking about the militias, state militias having guns? Because if you could clarify that for us, that would help a lot in the discussions that we have. It would be convenient. Uh, David has the document and he has a living, vital relationship with the author. Again, if I, if I think about this connection with the Lord Jesus, if I see David here, this king that is dependent on God's provision, what, what does the Bible tell us about the Lord Jesus? Do you know how many times the Gospels describe the Lord Jesus at prayer? One of my favorite passages in John 11, I like how he prays in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. Look at what it says. So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. 
But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. <laughs> He's praying out loud that people will hear him and know that he has a vital, real connection with God. Why did Israel need a king like this? Why Israel needs a king like David, uh, and we need a savior like this, because we need a savior who does what we can't do, what we don't do. So if I set this down and think about this, um, we need a Savior who, who obeys God's word perfectly. We need a Savior who is dependent upon God's provision. The reason we need a Savior like that is because that's what we don't do. We fail at this. We fail to obey. We fail to depend. It's the pattern from the beginning of creation. It's a pattern that's deeply embedded in us. We're going to go our own way. We're going to do our own thing. We need a Savior who doesn't, who, who follows God in a church, you know, when, when a church measures itself against the scriptures, it seems to me, this is true of our church, where we fail is in the things that we ought to do that we don't. Sins of omission, not sins of commission. Uh, we don't do those things. Uh, the, the, the elders are, are sometimes slow to intervene. The, the pastors are sometimes cowardly. We make it hard sometimes for people to assimilate into our social groups. I'm glad you're here on Sunday, but i got enough friends. Thanks. Have a good day. Hope you can find some here somewhere else. It's failures. These are commands in the New Testament about love and courageous care, and we fall short as a people. Our church, this church, falls short of what God calls us to do as a congregation. So you know what we need? We need a Savior who gets it right every time. Someone who's so close to God that he never falls short. Uh, the kids and I, when we drive around town, we like to listen to, it's been a while since we've done it, but we like to listen to uh, books on, uh, recorded books uh, by Clive Cussler and the books that feature a character by the name of Juan Cabrillo. Uh, these books are not written for kids, um, so, uh, but the content is, is, is relatively decent. So we listen to these books uh, because they make us laugh. They're, too ri- they're not supposed to make you laugh, but they do. They're, they're too ridiculous to read. Juan Cabrillo is the hero of every book, and he does what no human being can do. So in one day, Juan Cabrillo can crash land a plane, fight hand-to-hand five ninjas, get shot, get stabbed, and then run 45 miles over rough terrain with no shoes on, carrying two injured men in order to rescue the hostages. That's what Juan Cabrillo does. And we just laugh. But you know, it has to be Juan Cabrillo because Juan Cabrillo is the only one who can rescue the hostages. You pick up the Gospels and you read and you, this is impossible. How can it be that somebody could command the wind and the waves to be quiet and they stop? How can it be that somebody could touch a leper and make them uh, and heal them? How can it be that someone could answer the thoughts that a Pharisee has in his own teaching? That's impossible. Except it's the Lord Jesus. He's the only one who can. Now, if you recognize that pattern in the Bible, it changes, I think, how you read the commands of Scripture. Every command that you, you read in this book, some of them you read and they just, they weigh you down, don't they? All these commands about parenting or work 
or worship or patience or generosity. The good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel is that all of those commands have already been fulfilled perfectly for you by the Lord Jesus. Now, when that settles deeply into your heart, you read them differently. I have a record of being a perfect pastor in heaven. It's not my record here. But I have a record of being a perfect pastor in heaven. It was Jesus' report card and he gave it to me. You have a record of being a perfect parent in heaven. Jesus earned it for you. You have a perfect record of sexual purity in heaven. It was Jesus first and he gave it to you. Does that change how you read the commands when you pick these up? Uh, those of you who know Don Landis, uh, which is most of us, you know about his passion for golf. Don loves to play golf and he's really good at it. What, what you might not know is that, that Don keeps records of all his golf games. In fact, he has done it back into the 80s. If you played with him and you followed all the PGA rules, um, your score gets recorded in his books. So I'm there uh, for one of the two times that I've played golf with Don, and I have the distinction of having the second highest score of anyone else that Don has ever played. Okay. Um, I won't tell you what my score was, but if my golf score was your IQ, you'd be a way super genius, okay? Let's just say that. Uh, so I'm a terrible golfer. Don is an excellent golfer, uh, but, he, but Don is gracious and he's kind and he's encouraging. My golf balls, when I play, they like to spend a lot of time in the woods. So um, when, when you play with Don, you, you, when I play with Don, so I hit the golf ball and it lands somewhere and where's Don's golf ball? You always know where Don's golf ball is. It's 200 yards closer to the hole than yours, and it's in the center of the fairway. So because he doesn't need to look for where his golf ball is, because you always know, he has a lot of free time to help you find yours in the woods <laughs> while you're looking. So playing with Don is encouraging because he's a nice guy, but it is, it's depressing because he's so good. Now, Imagine that Don invited you to play golf with him one day, and, and uh, as you walk up to the first tee, Don says, Hey, here, here's your scorecard. I already filled it out for you. Um, I wrote your name on it, and you got par on every hole. You played a perfect game. Here's your card. And you say, but I haven't, I haven't come up to the tee yet. I know, I know, but I filled out your card. You did, you did perfectly. You had a, an awesome round. Now let's go play. Would you play any differently if you knew that your, your card was already filled out? How, how would that affect you? Um, it would change your attitude to the game. Wouldn't it? You, you, would, you wouldn't be crushed when you terribly. So here we are on hole three, and you finally eight putt for your score of 15, right? And, and, and you look at Don, and you say, I got a 15. He said, no, your scorecard says you've got a three. You've got par. You had a perfect score. You're not crushed. 15 doesn't crush you when the scorecard says three. You just move on to the next hole and try again, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have picked up, if you have trusted in him, you have a record in heaven of perfect obedience to every command in this book. Does that change how you read these commands? It doesn't crush you when you fail. 
It means, it means you're not crushed by them. Try again and, and see. Come to the Lord Jesus and you say, I failed again. He said, well, remember, you have a perfect record in heaven. It was mine, but I, I, I gave it to you. It changed the name on the card. It's absolutely perfect. <laughs> now you pick this up and you say, now which one of these have I perfectly obeyed today? Right? Changes your attitude about the command. I'm not crushed when I, when I fail them. And there's somebody with me, the Lord Jesus, who's the perfect Savior. Oh, he's the Savior that I need who walks with me and helps me pick up the pieces when I blow it again. Friends, here's King David in the text. Look at what he does and how he follows God's commands and how he leans into God's provisions. Brothers and sisters, look at the Lord Jesus and how for us he's followed his Father. Oh, look, he's the Savior that we need so desperately. Now, there's one more mark of this sort of king that we need here. We need a king who is designated by God as the deliverer. Designated by God as the deliverer. Now, clearly, the emphasis in this whole chapter is that God is working through David. God's working through David. God's blessing David. That, that's the emphasis here. Uh, you, you can see that in um, two different ways in particular. Verse 11, when Hiram sends him these cedar logs... Hiram is a Gentile and Hiram does what Gentiles are supposed to do before the Messiah, the the anointed king of Israel. They're supposed to bow before him and that's what Hiram does. So there's a sign that God is, is blessing David. The other sign of God's blessing to David is by naming all these children. You should be worried about this. David should not be taking to himself concubines and wives. It's not good. But it's a blessing. All these children are a blessing we know it's a blessing because Solomon is named here and Solomon's going to be the next king. So bless, God's blessing, he's, he's, he's blessing David. He's, he's, he's helping and with David. What I find interesting here is, is David's reaction to what Hiram does in verse 12. This is so important here. Verse 12. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. God loves Israel. He chose Israel. And what does he do? He gives them David. God loves his people. He loves the church. So what does he do? He gives us Jesus. Verse 10 is is helpful too in, in seeing this. He, David, became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. That's a powerful phrase in the Bible. God was with David. God was with David, and so he becomes more and more powerful. He wins, and he builds, and he, uh, he reproduces, he prospers because God is with him. Actually, it reminds me of Isaiah chapter 7. You might know the story. You know the verse that I'm working my way towards. So one of David's, in the book of Isaiah, one of David's great, 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 great grandsons, uh, his name was Ahaz, was on the throne. And Ahaz is not faithful like David. And Ahaz does not have the confidence in God like David. And and a foreign nation is coming. Two foreign nations are going to invade Judah. And Ahaz is nervous. He's worried about it. And Isaiah the prophet says, 
Uh, God's going to give you a sign that he's going to deliver you. This is probably what he does. We're, we're not quite sure, but Isaiah, it looks like what he, Isaiah does is he points this young woman in the crowd and he says, listen, Ahaz, that woman, that unmarried woman or that virgin, she's going to conceive and give birth to a son. And before that young lady, uh, before the baby that's born to that son knows right from wrong, God's going to deliver you. It's going to be a, a sign. It'll be a promise. Some people think that, Ahab, uh, that Isaiah the prophet married that young woman and the baby was his, maybe. And, and Isaiah says, so that you know for sure that this is, that this is God's work, you're going to name the baby Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because if God is with us, if God is on your side, you're going to win. You know what happens is in the New Testament as it unfolds, a virgin conceives and she gives birth to a son and he is God with us in the flesh. Jesus Christ is quite literally Emmanuel, God with us. Our testimony at Christmas time is that Jesus is God's deliverer. He's God's gift to us. He's God himself come to save us. And the most strange thing about this is that he saves us through the cross. It's almost inconceivable that this is how God would save us. He saves us by crushing our sins in his body on the cross. It's astounding. We celebrate and we sing, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus. Can you see what a difference that makes in David's life? And, and here comes our Savior. He indeed is the Savior that we need. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we uh, thank you for your great kindness to us in giving us the Lord Jesus. Father, we see what you do through David and it's, it's exciting, it's astounding. He's, he's courageous, he's clever, he's brave, he's, he's got moxie. And, and, and all of that pointing ahead towards our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord, this is the time of the year when we sing about him as um, a babe. He is tender and mild. He even sing that he didn't cry. <laughs> and yet, yet that, that baby is God in the flesh, God with us, who demonstrates all of the moxie and all of the obedience to you and commitment to you that is evident in, the Lord, in, in King David's life. Lord, fill us with joy because of this good news. The good news that you have given us the Savior that we so desperately need. We, your people, fail you. He, your Son, never disappointed you. Thank you for receiving us, blessing us in his name. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.